Welcome to the podcast. This is Fergus in Chicago. Today we talk with Nigel Carr. He's the chief strategy officer at the Tom Brass Group. They're a midsize agency doing some really interesting work here in the States. Um, I wanted to talk about one of their clients, which is Orange Theory Fitness. Orange Theory Fitness is a billion-dollar franchise of fitness studios that launched, I think, around six or seven years back, maybe a little longer. But I became familiar with it because I loved their visual identity. Their whole brand identity was very striking. It seemed very fresh and unique. And then in looking at what happened with Peloton and the, and the growth in Peloton, it was, always, it was fascinating for me, at least, to kind of think about the contrast between Orange Theory Fitness and Peloton. And Peloton, I think, is sort of that whole discussion, I think, is, is the value of virtual community versus physical community in its ability to motivate us. So we have that discussion to understand those distinctions and the different type of person who might be drawn to each of those distinct experiences. Obviously, this whole fitness category is uh, highly competitive. So not only are there Peloton creating uh, their experience, uh, but it's also Orange Theory, it's also Nordic Trek. So a lot of the brands that were sort of disrupted by Peloton and by Orange Theory, the equipment brands, have began to sort of try to refresh themselves so that they can compete stronger against the likes of, uh, of Peloton and Orange Theory. So uh, this is a conversation with Nigel Carr. Hope you enjoy. So welcome, Nigel Carr, Nigel's Chief Strategy Officer at the Tombras Group. Good to have you, Nigel. Great to be here. Thanks, Fergus. Uh, you and I met a couple of years ago when uh, we had lunch here in Chicago. We had a fun time. Yes, it was fun. It was fun. And uh, we've remained pen pals ever since, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you, you guys at Tom Brass have been doing a lot of exciting things. And, and one of the things that I've noticed over the last couple of years and sort of had a lot of admiration for is the Orange Theory brand. So I wanted to have a conversation about that because it seems to sort of um, tick the boxes on a lot of things that are really popular in culture. And uh, so I thought it would be a great conversation to have today. Yeah, yeah, it's it's been a fantastic ride. It was the it was the first pitch I did at Congress back in uh, 2015. Still have the business, still going gangbusters. So yeah, definitely been fun. So it's constantly in motion. This category seems to be. So could you give us a sense of how you see the landscape and maybe the ways it's changed, what it's changed from, to what you see it as being today? So I, I think the biggest change in the category has been the, the emergence of the studio workout facilities of which Orange Theory was, was arguably one of the first ones, where you show up for an hour, you have an appointment, uh, you're expected to be on time and make that appointment. But the huge benefit is that once you get there, the, the motivation is being supplied. So it's sort of the idea you go from a generalist experience, right, to more of a specialized experience when you go from the gym to the studio. Is that, is that, a, is that a fair way to look at the experience? Definitely a complete change of experience. Rather than generalist to specialized, although you could descriptively apply those labels, I would say you go from being alone and, and having to be your own coach to being helped, to, to not being alone, um, to being in an environment where the sheer practical energy of a coach telling you what to do and the emotional energy of, of being in, 
in a room where everyone's doing the same thing all around you. And also a better designed workout, a workout that is literally designed to get you to, to certain uh, heart rate utilization levels. And, and that's designed to avoid boredom, which is one of the biggest challenges if you're working out on your own in a traditional gym. So what is the orange theory, Nigel? So the orange theory is literally, is literally essentially a cardio, uh, a cardio theory, which is that if you, if you can get your heart rate utilization of above about 84% for a little over a quarter of an hour um, in a one hour workout, then you will actually enjoy that afterburn. We'll actually get a, a good enough cardio workout that you will not only burn calories during the workout, but your, your body will continue to burn calories for another 36 hours. And, and getting into the orange zone is not the most intense zone you can get into. You can also go a level further and get into the red zone, but that's not necessarily an advantage um, or an extra benefit to you. You came into this with an established brand definition, an established uh, brand identity, or did you guys help shape that? When we got the business, it was being a little bit held back. It was going gangbusters, but it was being a little bit held back with a one, by a 1% focus on bottom funnel direct marketing. So they were doing that direct marketing very effectively. They, effectively, they were optimizing it, but they, they didn't spend a penny on the brand. They spent every penny on at the bottom of the funnel acquiring new customers. I think we've learned as an agency that has a lot of very strongly branded retail clients, um, along with all our other uh, all our other brands. What we've learned is that it's kind of a false economy to spend 100% of your budget on, on that bottom funnel direct marketing. So this is the, uh, the Les Bennett uh, sort of uh, the long and the short of it perspective, the 60-40 rule. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, for, for a short period of time, you can get away with, as it were, milking, harvesting your, uh, the interest in your brand and the people who are entering the category of their own volition by doing bottom funnel only, but you can't, it's not a sustainable business model, it's not a sustainable media model. I think Facebook and Google, who obviously were the catalyst for this shift in marketing dollars to performance marketing, um, have actually started to figure out the damage they can do. They're both, they've both now become, they'll tell you whether you're spending too much on performance marketing and not enough on the brand at this point. And then they'll say, you're gonna, your trend, which you're now on, of increasing cost per acquisition is going to get worse. There's a convincing argument that says that the role of social media and earned media in the early stages of a startup, or I'm, I'm talking maybe in its first year, um, are what build the brand rather than brand communications. I mean, most of those startups don't even get into developing so-called brand campaigns until maybe year two, three. I mean, look at Airbnb, look at Uber, look at Slack. Um, and um, you can kind of see how the brand, and this is the challenge for, for agencies, is that there isn't the money to do it, number one. Uh, but though that free media is really, it seems to be where the brand is built in the first year or two. And I think that's probably what Orange Theory did. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, not, not in the identical way to an Uber, a Lyft, or, or an Airbnb, where there, was, there were a lot of very smart people in Silicon Valley 
analyzing the network effect, analyzing the impact of, of word of mouth and saying, hey, we can, we can use the network effect to, to put our business on steroids for the first year or so by creating a, an incentive. You know, if at its simplest, you know, I'll take Uber. Okay. At its simplest, you know, if you introduce your friend to Uber, they get a free ride and you get a free ride. Okay. So that kind of, that kind of marketing, which is essentially bottom funnel incentive marketing, but it was done intelligently around the, the, the network effect of word of mouth growth, allowed a, a lot of brands to accelerate their first mover advantage, if you will. However, sooner or later, you're going to need a brand, both because you're going to need to protect yourself against the network effects of competitors coming in uh, after you, and because if you don't have any loyalty, if you don't have any passion, you probably won't have a moat either. You know, there are very few brands that are, that are rationally motivated, or moated, I should say. And it becomes, it becomes too late to do brand marketing when the when you feel you need it the most. And that, and I mean by that is, it's too late to do it when you, when you have a brand reputation problem. Yes, of course. And you know, if, you're, if, if your relationship with your users has been transactional since the get-go, then you can't suddenly say, no, no, just kidding. We're, we're not those people. We're these other people over right, here. Right. Come on, totally. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because I think too many times, I mean, it makes sense if you're, if it, it makes financial sense, or it seems to make financial sense not to invest in something that hasn't got short-term tangible returns. But the reality is that so many brands end up at that point where they only begin to realize they need to invest in that. When somebody comes in and says that, you know, one of our metrics is dropping or there's a bad news cycle, and then there's no, there's no believability nor openness amongst consumers or your targets to change their mind. It seems, it seems uh, sort of self-interested. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's, I mean, very often, even for a brand that... I mean, that's Uber is a classic example of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's so transactional at this point. So I've, I've seen some of these spots... I've seen a spot that, I, that feels like more of a brand spot, which... Um, I'm not, I'm not sure if if this was uh, if it's a new one, but it's the one where you see the the woman wake up in the morning. She walks down the stairs in this modern home, and then she goes out to the activity. Is that is that the uh, is that one of the brand spots? That's actually that was actually our first brand spot um, back in 2017. I want to say January 2017. So for um, when we got the business in 2015, they said to us, "Hey, congratulations." Uh, you have the AOR for our brand, but guess what? There is no brand budget. <laughs> so <laughs> what we said was, well, for a certain period of time, you can get away, as I mentioned, but with just doing bottom funnel. You will eventually have to have a brand budget, and we'll get to that with you later, and we'll help you sell, sell the franchisees on spending it. But in the meantime... Our point of view is that you can do bottom-up branding. And, and we're obviously coming into this case study through several different doors. But um, So let me just step back a little bit and tell you that when we did pitch the business, we made certain observations. Okay, So um, our first observation was that that good feeling that you had 
that good cardio feeling, that good burn that you had during the workout continued and you took it home with you. So there was a sort of built-in, um, highly positive addictiveness to this workout. Um, so that was our first observation. And we, we actually wrote a, um, a manifesto which had that at the center. And not long afterwards, we wrote a line, keep burning, which, which kind of took a dotted line from, which I think often works very well in brand architecture. There was a dotted line in keep burning from the, from the product itself and the, the science of the afterburn all the way through to the emotion of the aspiration, which, which helped us a bit. But a, a, another important observation that we made was that this was an unbelievably vibrantly strong brand that was actually being driven. And we had a little bit of data on this. And we obviously um, did more research after we built the business. But um, the brand was being driven more by, um, more by referrals than, than by marketing. And this was, we had a little tiny bit of quantitative evidence for this, and we could also see it every time we did the workout ourselves. And the truth is that, and this often happens, you often find this at the heart of a great case study, even though you don't often find the people who were involved admitting it. But this was a, this was a brand that was so well constructed on every level. Um, from the product to the experience, that the single most important role of its marketers and its agency uh, was to not screw it up. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, they've been doing this for about I don't know, fifteen, eighteen months. They hired a new chief brand officer, a uh, very smart guy, Ken, uh, Kevin Keith. He agreed with us that the bottom-up branding was was a great band-aid, but that it was about time that that we found ourselves a brand budget and we worked together with the, the, the C-suite at Orange Theory Corporate in our, in our first year together to, uh, to convince the franchisees to essentially double the, you know, double the, the, um, the marketing budget from 1% of revenue to 2% of revenue, which allowed us to have a brand campaign. And that was a, that was a huge change. Kevin also worked with us to, to really focus and, and challenge our own strategic thinking on the brand, and I think we pushed we pushed a little higher in terms of in terms of brand purpose. We we changed our our strategic we pushed our strategic thinking upwards from from this idea of keep burning, which I, I think a bigger platform. Working with Kevin, which which we call Burning for Life, that kind of helped us get to our campaign, which which moved to a, a tagline of more life. And a piece of thinking, a simple formula initially that was foundational, and then I think we we pushed further over the years that expressed the idea that the more time you spend in in the studio, the more life you have outside of the studio. So where do you, Nigel? Where do you think the um, Orange Theory customer comes from? We felt like we did not have enough money to, uh, and this is a phrase we use um, on the account to to get people off the couch, okay, who were never going to get off the couch. We called our audience change seekers, A, to really super emphasize um, the transformation that's at the heart and soul of, of our brand experience, but also B, to reduce the size of our audience to the more manageable, more, more reachable uh, group of people who had that thing in common. The, they had raised their hands. They were looking around for, they are looking around for, for where 
to transform themselves. What sort of change are they looking for in their lives? Well, it comes from, you know, it, it comes from either um, an inspiring goal or a nagging dissatisfaction, <laughs> if you will, you know. Is the Orange Theory woman, is she a, uh, a woman who has not been working out in the past and she's looking for uh, a way to come into it? Or is she a woman who's going to the gym or she's going to Pilates and she wants to add something else in? In other words, is she new to the space or is she somebody who's coming with a set of experiences that you guys are going to build upon? A goodly percentage of our members are also, are also members of traditional gyms. Uh, and obviously there are people who were working out before. An equal percentage, uh, and when you add these two together, you're getting to the majority, are people who are, again, mostly women, who were either working out previously in too low an impact of a way, so they just weren't getting, they weren't getting, they weren't seeing any results, even though they were enjoying the workout, or they're people, and, and this is probably us, I, I feel this is us, this has been and, and continues to be arguably our single biggest source of membership. People who were working out in gyms and just not satisfied with their ability to motivate themselves, their ability to keep pushing themselves, to, to keep making progress. I'm interested in how you think about Peloton. Sure. So firstly, um, you know, there are personas in any marketplace. There are different kinds of people who are in the market for a different kind of product and whose motivations are different. Peloton, although they have started opening some locations, as you know, but, but, but the, uh, the basis for Peloton was, was to, uh, to target people who, um, who were certainly as upscale as, as our audience, maybe even more upscale financially, but, but to target people who wanted to work out at home, who were fine working out alone, who didn't need or didn't feel they needed that motivation. And obviously there have been predecessors to Peloton in terms of all kinds of in-home exercise machines and routines, many of which didn't work because people couldn't motivate themselves and, uh, and ended up gathering dust in the garage. And what, was, what I think was different and smart about Peloton is that they did and, and to continue to evolve the, the role of technology in the workout to, to create engagement to create motivation. But also they are still talking to a different persona. I mean, you know, we have we have members, uh, obviously we have a small number of members who, who, who have their own Peloton, but 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 we have way more members who who say, hey, I couldn't, I can't motivate myself to go to the next room at home. <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, or you don't or you don't want to be at home. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe was that too. But you know, either way, there are a lot of different layers of motivation to get you to the to the to the orange theory studio there's there's the friend who you convince to join who will often be your workout buddy and you'll you'll go together there's the fact that you look forward to your favorite coach and you book a class that's that's his class or her class you want to go to that class because you feel like you have a relationship with them there's the sheer energy of the studio which over and over again, our members say, tell us to work out feel a lot less than an hour. And the time goes so fast. You're getting the results of the length of time you're working out, but, but you're not getting that draggy feeling, the, a draggy feeling that, that is never going to end. Right. You know, it's interesting also to look at your brand platform 
which is burning for life, and Peloton's brand platform, which is makes hard work fun. Mm-hmm. They're they're very similar, but you you exist in different places. But you're I, I would say that you're positioned in very similar ways, but you, but you don't really compete. You have a completely different audience. It seems some overlap. There is a nuance of difference between those two strategies. It seems to be focusing on on making that individual workout more palatable, more palatably enjoyable. I think you said making work fun, right? Yeah, make it makes hard work fun. Yeah, so so that's that's sending you a signal, hey, you're going to enjoy the workout. Now, we have an enjoyable workout, but our strategy is much more focused on um, the end-to-end benefit to the user. It, it still has that dotted line from participating in the workout being the thing that gets you to the end benefit. But at the end of the day, our, our line of more life and our, our advertising construct that that the time you spend in the studio is is reflected in the uh, the energy, the extra energy you have in your life. To me, anyway, feels like a bigger claim than make hard work fun, even though the end result is enjoyable in both cases. Yeah, it seems as if Peloton with the bike, which is for you know, it has been historically a single device workout, and now they're they're adding the treadmill. But it seems that what what you guys have always had on them. You're, you're a physical, in-person, communal experience, and theirs is a virtual. I'm glad you said that because now I can get to use that word holistic without which a podcast would not be complete. Um, and uh, it is a holistic workout. You know, it is, it is getting you to transformative results that are going to impact your whole life. And it's engaging you during the course of the workout, not just physically, but, but emotionally. You know, I mean, you you feel like you're being borne along by the tide of of energy inside the studio, the energy of the coach, the energy of the people around you who are all pushing themselves, and the and the energy of the music, which is changing every time. I can't imagine that if you had an Orange Theory experience at home. In other words, you had two pieces of equipment and a, a mat for for floor exercises. Mm-hmm. Which is where which is where Peloton's going, right? They're they're trying to do treadmill, they're trying to do bike, and they're trying to do floor exercises. The um, you couldn't still couldn't duplicate the Orange Th- Theory experience because it requires that in person experience. I'm not sure that you get it through the virtual community. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and and that's why you know when, when you when you started asking the question, what is the what is the source of our success? You know. You started with the community. Take away the community and you're taking away, for a lot of people, the motivation. Nigel Carr, Chief Strategy Officer, the Tom Brass Group, thank you so much for uh, taking some time to talk with us about Orange Theory. Um, Hope you enjoyed it. Really enjoyed it. Good luck with your podcast series and one day I hope to be back. You will be, sir. Thanks a lot.